Turn with me, please, to the book of John. As we've been going through the book of John, we've made it now to chapter 7. We'll be reading the first 13 verses. And this morning we see a bit of the controversy that Jesus stirs up. Now the book of John, if, if you haven't remembered or haven't been here, the book of John is uh, all about the, the difference between these two groups of people. So there's people who are becoming true believers of Jesus, and then there are people who are not true believers in Jesus. And John, near the end of his book, says that he has written these things so that we may believe, and that believing we may have life in his name. So this is the, the whole point of the book of John, and as we read each chapter, we see the discussion of belief happening over and over and over again. And the question is, what exactly are we supposed to believe? Because we begin to see that there are people who claim to believe, but who don't actually believe. And John makes this difference become clear chapter by chapter. People who claim to be followers of Jesus in the, at the end of chapter 6 that we, we looked at last week, the vast majority of them walk away from him when he says that he is the bread of life that comes down out of heaven and that they are to partake of him, that they are to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and everybody goes, okay, yeah, I'm out of here. Right? And we understand conceptually why they would say, okay, yeah, I'm out of here. But we also understand that the fact that they left demonstrated that they did not believe. They did not understand who Jesus was, and therefore when they believed in him, when they became followers of him, it meant nothing. He had just fed this whole crowd up on the mountain, 5,000 people, and he took a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish, and he handed it out to everybody, and everybody was fed. And so they all believed that he could perform miracles. They all believed that he could feed them, and, and they believed that this was impressive, but they didn't have the belief that John is speaking of in his book. And we'll see that brought out this morning again, this question of belief. And we'll begin to see the gap widening between the people who truly believe in Jesus and those who do not. As we move closer and closer to the time when Jesus is crucified, and at that point you see Crowds, on the one hand, worshiping him, throwing their coats on the road, the palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, and on the other hand, crying out, crucify him. And so at that point, you have this division become as, you know, there's this vast chasm by the time we get there. But we're not there yet. We haven't made it to the time when he's crucified for the sins of his people. John is still beginning to show us this division between the two groups of people. It's, the gap is widening as we move towards Crucifixion Weekend. And the other, the other theme that we see in John right now, over and over again, is this 
Jesus describing why he is here. And over and over again, what he says he's here to do is the will of his Father. And so there's this this extraordinarily clear plan that he has. Now, it's not not clear to his disciples, but it's, it's absolutely clear in his mind what he's doing, why he's doing it, and, as we'll see this morning, when he's doing it. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus refuses in this this whole passage to do what people want him to do. Now, as I just got done saying before, Jesus has made clear a number of times already in the book of John that what he's here to do is the will of his Father. And so it's not surprising to us that we see him refusing to do what various people want him to do. He leaves Judea. And that foils the plan of the Jews who wanted to kill him. Right? For a while, Jesus is consistently avoiding death. Well, he came to die. So why is he consistently avoiding death? Why does he leave Judea? It says because the people, the Jews were seeking to kill him, right? But if he came to die, then what's, what's the point? Well... It's not because he's afraid, right? It's because his time had not yet fully come, which is exactly the answer he gives to his brothers when they want him to go up to the feast. And it says they don't believe in him. And that is the reason that is given for their desire for him to go up to the feast. They say, go up to the feast. Show yourself to the people. 
Now, this is not an uncommonly evil request, okay? It, with that, if, if we didn't have that one little sentence for even his brothers were not believing in him, we wouldn't necessarily think anything bad about them saying, go up to the feast, right? You could, tra- you could, you could understand them to be speaking in, this, in a very positive way, they could be saying that they believe in him and they wish more people would see him. They wish more people would, would hear his good news and believe in him, right? That's, that's one way of understanding what they're saying. You, you know, do these things publicly. Let people see you. But with that one sentence where it says, for they were not believing in him, we're given an explanation of what's going on. They don't believe in him, and therefore, their interpretation of what he should do is off. You get that? Because they don't believe in him, therefore, their desire is wrong. even if it's meant well. And we don't know how it's meant when they, when they give this exhortation to, to Jesus, go up to Jerusalem, go up to the feast. We don't know exactly what their goal was, what motivated them, but we do know that it came out of their unbelief, not out of their belief. And so... Remember, we're talking about two groups of people here in the book of John. Over and over again, you've got the people who believe and the people who don't believe. And now all of a sudden, you've got his brothers being added to the group that don't believe. Now, that's a pretty sad thing, first of all. But the consequences of it, we, we, can't, lose, we can't lose sight of those consequences. Okay? Because what it meant for them was that Their desire with regard to Jesus was wrong, even if they meant well. Even if they meant well. Now, this happens still today. The, dis- the, the difference, the discrepancy between those who believe and those who don't believe is that our actions and our desires, even when meant as, as well as we can possibly mean them, if we don't believe, end up being wicked desires. It was wicked for his brothers to push Jesus to go up to Jerusalem. And the reason it was wicked for his brothers to push him to go up to Jerusalem, at its core, it's because they didn't believe. Now that sounds crazy, okay? And I understand that it sounds crazy, that simply because they don't believe, therefore their desire that Jesus would go up to Jerusalem is is wicked. But we read elsewhere in the New Testament, without faith it is impossible to please him, speaking of our Heavenly Father. Without faith it is impossible to please him. And we see this 
we see this explained a little bit by Jesus in verse 6 where he says to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Now we're going we're gonna to come back to this in a little bit, but let me return to this let me just go back for a second to this idea that Jesus is disappointing people this, in, in this passage. He's disappointing the Jews because he foils their plan to kill him. He's disappointing his brothers because he's foiling their plan for him to go up to Jerusalem, right? And he's disappointing, ultimately, if we, if we were to go other places and read uh, in, the, in the other Gospels, we read a few different times of, when Jesus decides to leave Galilee and go back to Jerusalem, that he disappoints his disciples because his disciples say, but they're trying to kill you in Judea. Why are you going back there? All right? And then in this, in this passage again, we see that when he doesn't show up at the feast, even though all the people are looking for him, The people are disappointed. The crowds are disappointed. And it causes them to grumble and argue about him. Jesus doesn't get bothered by this. He doesn't get bothered that all of these people are being disappointed by him that all of their, their plans are, are falling apart because he's not doing what's expected of him. Now, of course, you wouldn't expect him to uh, be bothered that, the Jews, that, that he foiled the Jews' plan to murder him, right? <laughs> Anytime you foil a plan for somebody to murder you, you think, yay! But, but walk forward for a second to his brother's disappointing his brothers when they want him to go up and to make himself public, or step forward one further to the crowds when he disappoints all of the people who have gathered in, in Jerusalem for this feast. And this is, this is one of the high points of the year for the Jews, the Feast of Booths. Okay, There were two main big feasts where people would come from all over the place and they would end up in Jerusalem. And they'd have a big party in Jerusalem. And there'd be all people there from all around. And this is one of those times. And Jesus has been teaching publicly up until this point. And the crowds have been getting to know him. And you can imagine, you know, it's sort of this, there's, there's, there's groups of people who haven't, who've only heard secondhand still. And now they're all gathered together in Jerusalem and they want to hear firsthand from this Jesus guy. If they've heard from him already, they want to hear him again. If they haven't heard, they're like, hey, now this is my chance. I'll go up to the feast in Jerusalem and Jesus will be there. And then they get there and Jesus isn't there. And what we would say today at that point is, what a waste. What a missed opportunity. Jesus could have shared the gospel with so many people. Isn't that what our first inclination would be to say? But Jesus goes up secretly. 
why does Jesus go up secretly? Why, does, why is he intent on, on disappointing all of these people? The Jews, the crowds, his disciples, his brothers, all of them have these plans, these ideas for what he should be doing, and Jesus just isn't going along with their plans. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you have plans for your life? Do you have plans for your life? And have you ever had those plans thwarted? You know what thwarted means, Tate? No. It's when you decide that you're going to go outside and play in the sandbox, and then it starts raining. Your plans have been thwarted. You don't get to do what you want to do. You know, anybody had this happen? All right. We've all experienced this, right? Well, who is... Who is sovereign over the rain? God is sovereign over the rain, isn't he? And so, God is the one who steps between us and our desires often. God is the one who breaks apart our plan and doesn't give us what we want whenever that happens. Jesus is doing the same thing to all of the people there that happens to us on a regular basis. And so the question is, why? Why does Jesus do that? Why does God do that to us? Some of these plans that we have are really very good. Right? I mean, you can, like... Let's think about this for a second. There's evil plans. The plans of the Jews to murder Jesus, that's an evil plan, and that gets thwarted, that gets stopped by Jesus not going up. He disappoints them in their plan, right? And it's like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's an act of God's grace to prevent us from going headlong into evil. When he stops us in those plans, we're, we're grateful for that, sometimes. But at least we understand that that's like a, a good thing. The place that it's really disappointing is over here where we've got this idea that we've got this very good thing that we're going to do. And when those plans are the ones that don't work out, that's when we really begin to be irritated at God. Right? That's when we're really tempted to say, you know, I had a good plan. And God stopped my plan. How dare he? Jesus is intent on fulfilling God's plan. Jesus is intent on fulfilling God's plan. Not your plan, not my plan. Not the Jews' plan, not the disciples' plan, not his brother's plan. He's intent on fulfilling the plan of his heavenly Father. And in each case, the reason that their plan is disappointed is simply because his plan differs from theirs. So when I say to you, God thwarts your plan, 
There's, that's one way of looking at it, that God's just standing in your path and preventing you from doing good things. Oh yeah, God just wants to stop you from doing good things. That's why he's in front of you. No, that's not what's going on. What's going on is he has a different plan. There's a big difference between those perspectives, isn't there? He has a different plan. And his plan is good. And in each place, his plan frustrated their desires because their desires were sinful. It's easy to sin, isn't it? When you, when you read verses 6 and 7, back to back, it, it begins to make clear how easy it is to sin. Verse 6 says, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Well, in one sense, Jesus might just be saying to them, you know, my time to go up to the feast is not yet here, but you can go up whenever you want. It's always opportune for you to go up to the feast. But when he follows it up right, as, right away as he does with verse 7, where it says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil, it totally changes the takeaway of that verse, doesn't it? Always, it's always an opportune time to sin, isn't it? There's never, there's never any difficulty in finding the time to sin. Am I right? I mean, it's always opportune. The opportunity is always there. The sin that so easily entangles is always knocking at our door, right? It's always an opportune time. But doing God's work requires us to be patient. Doing God's work is totally different than doing, following our own plan. In each case, as Jesus is seeking to fulfill his heavenly Father's plan, his actions contrast with the behavior of the people around him. And that itself is part of what testifies to them that their deeds are evil. Because as Jesus perfectly fulfills the Heavenly Father's plan, it becomes clear how the people around him are not fulfilling their Heavenly Father's plan. And that is, by definition, sin. When we do not do what our Heavenly Father requires of us, right? we are sinning. And so I say, doing God's work requires us to be patient. Why? Well, because you have to wait on the Lord. You have to trust in Him. Think of, 
Think for a minute back to the Old Testament, and, and you think about, um, as, as Paul was explaining to us earlier, you know, that the sin that is recorded in the Old Testament, the people of God, is gnarly, right? Some of the stuff is like, yikes. Well, here's a yikes, here's a yikes place for you. Do you remember when King Saul was told to destroy the Amorites, and he goes and he kills all of them, and then he comes back and he's waiting for, he's waiting for Samuel the prophet to come back and to sacrifice? You guys remember this story? So he's, he's gone and he's done what the Lord says. Now, he didn't quite do it, right? Didn't quite obey. And then he's waiting for the prophet to come and do the sacrifice. And what happens? Well, the prophet doesn't come, and the prophet doesn't come, and the prophet doesn't come. And just take that one spot for a second. That, that one spot. Put, put yourself in King Saul's shoes, and what is the right thing to do, and what is the wrong thing to do? The right thing to do is to wait for the prophet to come and to do the sacrifice, right? The wrong thing to do is to do the sacrifice yourself. But if you, just, if you just think about what needs to happen is the sacrifice. The sacrifice needs to happen. We're sitting here waiting for the sacrifice. The time is almost up. We're running out of time. We need the sacrifice. It's a good thing. Let's do the sacrifice. But should we? Is it actually a good thing? No, what we need to do at that point is we need to wait on the Lord to provide for the sacrifice. It should never surprise us when we are faulted for seeking to follow God's plan. Okay? It should never surprise us when we're faulted for seeking to follow God's plan. Caring what God wants rather than what seems reasonable to the world will always make the world gnash its teeth at you. It seems reasonable to the world for you to seek your own benefit you got to watch out first for number one, right? This is what seems reasonable to the world. Who's number one? Me. And if you don't watch out for you, who is going to watch out for you? It's, it's the, you know, it's... Before you can learn to love others like you love yourself, you've got to first love yourself. This is what seems reasonable to the world. Okay, and, and it's wrapped up in all of this good-sounding, biblical kind of talk. So, the, you know, the very first thing you need to learn to do is love yourself. And I say, no. No, the first thing you need to learn to do is to love God. The second thing you need to learn to do is to love your neighbor. The third thing you need to learn to do is not to love yourself as much. 
we can't be surprised. Jesus disappointed the people, and it caused them to grumble. They wanted him to show up at the feast. He didn't show up at the feast. They grumble about it, and they argue amongst themselves. Is it good or is it bad? Now, you, you, know, you guys know what grumbling and, and arguing is like, right? You've seen it this last week with regards to some gorilla somewhere, right? This is grumbling. I don't know if you've... This is the kind of thing that you've got going on. Except they, were, they, had this, they had this weird thing where it was all happening secretly, privately, in these little conversations. Instead of being public before the whole world in front of everybody on Twitter and Facebook and in the newspapers because they were scared about something. If you could imagine a, a situation where there was the possibility of getting in trouble for what your position was on it, you know, like maybe the government might show up and knock on your door depending on how you answer wrong or right. Then you might be having these kinds of conversations and, and grumbling and, and arguing and, and talking with one another back and forth in secret, in your homes. Make sure your cell phone's off, right? We're more paranoid of you. This is the result of Jesus just not showing up at the feast when they were expecting him to show up at the feast. Seems reasonable enough for him to show up at the feast on time, doesn't it? And yet they fault him. And they begin to argue amongst themselves. Often, even those who think well of you will grumble at what you do. You notice that it says that... uh, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. And yet both of them are grumbling about it, aren't they? The, probably the one thing that you could have gotten both groups to agree on is he should have shown up already. The one thing we know is that this was a controversial move for Jesus not to show up on time to the feast. And that's a bad testimony, Jesus. Showing up late, that's a bad testimony. Now, Jesus isn't worried. Jesus isn't worried about what seems reasonable to the world. Jesus is worried about fulfilling his Father's plan. Yeah, it was controversial for him to show up at the feast late. Yeah, your seeking to follow God's plan will be controversial among your friends. Even those who claim to be followers of Jesus will look at you askance. They'll raise their eyebrows and they'll be like, I don't know why you have to be so controversial. And if what your goal is is simply that your plan would be met, then your controversiality is useless. But if your goal is that God's plan would be fulfilled, then Don't sweat the controversy. Just seek to follow God's plan and wait on his timing. 
and wait for his reward for following his plan. Remember the promise. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. How does it go on? It, it says that they're not bad plans. That's what it says next. They're good plans. They're good for you, for a hope and a future. Jesus is fulfilling his Father's plan. And what it ends up doing is it ends up driving the wedge further in between the people who claimed he was a good man and those who claimed that he was a wicked man leading the people astray. It forced people to have to choose which side they were going to fall on. And it testified before the world that the world's deeds are evil, as we see in verse 7. If our goal is to prevent the world from hating us, we've rejected the plan of the Father. If our plan, our goal, is to fulfill the work of our Heavenly Father, then everything we do will testify. Every word that we speak will be a testimony that will cause the world to see that its deeds are evil. And that tension is the tension that we don't like living in. That tension right there where our deeds have caused people to feel like you're judging them. All I did was go to the grocery store with my kids and all these people are angry at me. Well, yeah, because your your deeds testify to the world that its deeds are evil. You say, how could going to the grocery store with your kids? I say, when you're fulfilling the plan of God, that's what happens. I'm telling you, it's astounding. When you're seeking to fulfill the, the work of your Father in heaven, it doesn't matter what you do. People will look at you and be like, I think she's judging me. It won't make any sense until you look at this passage the way that Jesus does. He says, they can't hate you, but they always hate me because my deeds testify. I testify. I'm always testifying that their deeds are evil. And so going to the grocery store with your kids testifies against the wickedness of abortion, and it makes people feel judged. That's all you have to do. All you have to do is have a baby and you've testified to the plan of the Heavenly Father being a good, holy, true plan. And 
and it will make people hate you. Live with Jesus in that tension. Seeking the plan of your heavenly Father. And suffering together with him the degradation, the hatred, and the grumbling of the people. Let's pray.